0: The Aschool Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. So I'm Toby Salt, former CEO of AQA, former CEO of Almost Academy's Trust. Before that, director in the Innovation Unit, deputy CEO of the National College of School Leadership. Do you want the full CV? And before that, just a plain ordinary head teacher and teacher. Probably well, happier happier then than any other time. I can't can believe
1: be. you were ever ordinary, but you're right, you were plain. Um, but uh, thanks so much for joining me now. And you, you've got um, this extraordinary career behind you. And you've decided to reflect on that through your new book, um, which is a fascinating one called The Juggling Act. Just explain to people why it's called The Juggling Act.
0: So we went backwards and forwards, Laura and I, and what it would do. And I was really pleased to write this with Laura. Partly Laura gave me the discipline that I need to make sure I did my homework and I actually wrote my, my bits. But also, it, she turned into much more of a conversation. And we p- toyed with the idea of what we're going to call it. And I kept saying, ultimately, uh, you spend your life juggling, juggling priorities, juggling family and work, juggling health and achievement, juggling money. And actually, that's how it was born, the juggling act, how to juggle leadership in life, which ultimately is relevant to all leaders at all levels. And it's probably the most important challenge that we have.
1: I think that's what I enjoyed about the book. And as you know, I read a huge, huge number of books about leadership and management. And we talk endlessly about work life and well-being and so on and so forth. But you put that absolutely centre stage, don't you? You, you? you know, There's a sense in which what we want to be remembered for, of course, is the stuff we do in our leadership. But probably we also want to be remembered for the quality of our life as well so where did you get the idea that that was going to be the the kind of driving force is that always been the theme of the way in which you've worked as you've moved up through leadership
0: no but and and, you know they start off with saying an honest confession at the beginning good catholic boy that you see jeff you know a confession at the (laughs) beginning is i know i didn't get it right you know and this this isn't you know the last book i would write part of my motivation for writing the book is to remind people that i am still alive i am still relevant but at the same time um, I just think that there are things that I've learned and lessons that I've learned that actually may have some relevance for other people, and I don't want them to not learn from the mistakes I made. So I didn't always get the prioritisation right, and I certainly made some decisions which are in the book that were the wrong decisions at times, uh, where I put work before family or where I lost my sense of perspective. Uh, And I spend a lot of time now working with CEOs and heads talking about making sure that they just keep that balance right and they keep the balls juggling. Because if you get out of sync, you can end up in an absolute muddle. You know, one example was where... I, I was at a National College of School Leadership conference. They were really important. You remember them, great conferences. Really
1: important. I do. They're, they're, yeah, they were right. the kind of high, highlight of the year. They kind of um, rejuvenated you towards the end of the year there.
0: They did, and they, and they were really important. And they were really important that school leaders were giving up time to go, had a, a very good experience, and my team pulled them together. And Steve, who was the CEO, was rightly really worried about them being right and really good. Uh, And I always felt that my job was to be there behind the scenes, making sure that the secretary got on the stage, off the stage, and making sure that all the speakers were in the right place, and glad and making sure things went well. On this occasion, it was just after my wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and she was having a mastectomy. And she was absolutely clear. She's stoic. She is my rock, and she was saying, I don't want you here. No reason for you to be here. Uh, Stay out of the way. Of course you should go to Nottingham. Uh, and then to Birmingham. So off I went to Birmingham to the ICC and it was Steve's wife who sort of slapped me in the face with a wet fish one evening and said, so, so where's Terry? And I said, oh, she's actually in hospital at the moment. Yes, yeah, Steve said that she'd been ill. I said, well, she's actually having a mastectomy or, you know, a lumpectomy at the moment. Um, she's she's fine. She's absolutely fine. She's watching Wimbledon. It'll all be fine. And she said, so you chose to be here rather than there? And she was actually quite cross and she was quite right and it sort of was a jolt. And I remember thinking, she has a point, you know. Actually, <laughs> I've probably got this wrong. I should have been there. And I did the same when Isaac was having an appendix, my son, who had appendectomy. And again, I went um, off merrily to an important meeting or I think to a, a national college conference again and I forgot again. So looking back... I didn't always make the right decision at the right time. and so those are tr- sort of relatively personal examples. But I think all leaders have the same problem and all the, all the worries. Yeah. What, I,
1: what I like about that is, is, is someone who gets to your position. So most recently, your, your role as CEO of AQA. So a very complicated but also high risk job because of examination results and all the other stuff that goes on. that that what we might have expected was a kind of reflection on the big and the grand stuff and the achievements and and there's there's a hint of that and there's quotations from people on leadership but it's an incredibly grounded book isn't it so you've got things like well let's let's just take the the beginning of it what makes a difference to darren for example i mean what just just give us a sense of what, what why would you be asking a question about darren
0: so darren is my sort of imaginary child and i talk about several youngsters and and it's It's not twee and it's not trite, and I do think everybody needs to know what drives them. And I say at the end, one of the questions to ask yourself is what drives you, what's important to you, what are you making a difference to and for who? Um, And if you don't know the answer, ask the person who loves you most or your biggest critic, because they'll give you an honest answer and tell you what drives you, and it may not be what you think it is. But in terms of what I talk about, in it, the chapter's called Making a Difference to Darren, I basically say all leaders need to have that central true north, the idea of what is it that's going to actually help you prioritise and make decisions. And in the back of my mind, I always have the picture and the faces, often the eyes. Isn't it funny how you remember the eyes of children you've taught or worked with? Yeah. yeah. Um, And the important decisions you made for them. So I talk about... Um, and I have to be careful here because in the book, I've changed their names. So
1: I <laughs> right. Ah, you've got to genres. remember, yes, yes which, <laughs> yeah. which pseudonym to use.
0: So so this one, Sam, which wasn't her name, uh, really difficult um, young lady who, you know, was a an almost school refuser, being really, really difficult to go to school. Um, actually, it shows how old I am, uh, was a solvent abuser, sniffing glue and sniffing... Of substances she used to put on her sleeve, so when you got her into school, she was still not actually properly partaking. She was gently just sniffing away, um, but she was incredibly bright and had huge potential. And I worked really hard with her, and it wasn't re- I was I was ahead of year. It wasn't my job to do it really, but with the attendance officer, we agreed with her that she would get a lift into school every morning. Um, And if she was ready, she would get a lift from me or the attendance officer, uh, normally together, for obvious reasons. Um, And the deal was we would go every morning, and if she wasn't out of bed, her mother would shout up the stairs to get her out of bed, and we would wait outside. And I knew if I missed one session, one morning, if we were late just once, that would be an excuse to never go, and we'd let her down, oh, you let me down. Everybody let her down, and everything else in life. And we never did. And we did manage to change her attendance. Now, there are millions of children that, uh, and adults who have done similar. But what it taught me was the importance of routine and consistency. Or the story of, um, let me remember his name in the book. Uh, <laughs> what do I call him? Oh, Liam. So Liam was a very difficult, very challenging young lad. And he was a foster child of, of Terry and I at the time. And he had the most enormous Cow eyes, sort of haunting eyes, the size of a cow, very difficult lad, um, then had a statement for behavioral difficulties now would be called an the HCP um, for SEMH, and he was very damaged from his relationship with his family. Uh, and he was doing all right with school and doing all right with us, but he lived for the weekly visit to meet his mother under an un- underpass. In the local town, where we went to meet her. And the social worker insisted we did it. And every week, I'd drive, we'd go and sit under the underpass and wait for his mother. And I knew in my heart of hearts she wasn't going to show. But every week, he spent all morning getting ready, putting on aftershave, and trying to smell nice and look nice for his mother because he felt rejected and want- all he wanted was his mother to be there. And every time she didn't come. And every time we drove the seven miles back home with him deflated, beside himself, sobbing. And I did it about six times before I thought, I can't do this anymore. This is cruel. And I don't care what's in the court order. And I don't care what the social worker said. So I rang the social worker and I said, we've both discussed this. We can't do this anymore. This is unkind. It's not fair to him. And we need to do what's right for him. And they allowed us for it not to continue and wrote a letter to mum to say, if you want to, this is where he is, this is how you get in contact. And that was another important lesson for me in life, which is, if your gut's telling you it's wrong, if it doesn't feel right, then don't do it. And so that's another little eye, another view that I have. And when I'm deciding what I'm going to do, Be it what I'm going to spend money on, how we're going to design a building, what I'm going to say to a minister, what the policy advice on a decision must be. In the back of my mind, all those youngsters I talk about in that chapter, all those key decisions that have changed that. And if you're not sure what you're going to do, in your own mind, decide what's going to make a difference to Darren. And work out what's your Darren and who your Darrens are. It's
1: beautifully put because, I mean, part of what the National College did for us was give us a great sense of the importance of vision and values. And I sometimes used to feel, when I was working my way through MPQH and so on, that it was all a little bit sometimes overblown. And what you're doing is absolutely, you know, I used the word grounded before, sitting under that underpass could not be more grounded about what you're doing for Darren. I love the fact that what you're able to do is to articulate... The stuff that leaders do, so, for example, you've got chapters on uh, f- uh, thanking thanking people. Uh, thank you loudly and often, you say. You've got stuff about developing your successor there. You, you call it cast and understudy, for example. So many things which we know are key ingredients, but the way you are um, phrasing those very often are in a much more colloquial kind of way. And I think it makes it very, very personal book presumably it felt like that as you as you were working through it did
0: it yeah it was it was nice to read and you're very kind and very gentle and i I too used to get a little bit annoyed sometimes with the national college language um and i could i could never work out what the visions or the values were and i worked really hard is it visions is it value which (laughs) in my mind today Uh, but but the reality is leadership is about people uh and it is simple now uh, you know you it colloquial grounded i'd say lowbrow um my my coach, funnily enough, <laughs> I sent him a copy, rang me yesterday, he said, Toby, it was great. I read it in one sitting, I said, on one sitting, on the loo, New reading, not live reading.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Talk about grounded.
0: <laughs> and I said, yeah, fair comment, that's exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, it's not meant to be hard. You know, the truth is, leaders of all types in education, but particularly in schools, uh don't have a lot of spare time. They want something that's going to make them smile. And there's some funny stories in there too. You know, the, the time I got shared a lift in Ed Ball's ministerial car, I was really pleased to be there. But we were squashed in a bit into the car, stopped for coffee on the way back from a meeting. He kindly bought me the coffee, and I then poured it all over his trousers, nearly <laughs> burning him. <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps I'm <laughs> to blame for his strange, strictly dancing. It's it,
1: It's a very, very enjoyable and very... Easy read, and it's an easy read partly because it's nice, short chapters, partly because it has a lovely, accessible, colloquial tone to it, but partly because I think what it does, if I might be pretentious, um, is it punctures a lot of the kind of pomposity of, of leadership. It, it, it kind of, you know, to use the word I've used a lot here, it grounds us in, in, in stuff. I, I, I really enjoyed reading it. Let me just get, do, do one final thing, Toby, because you say pretty early on that you have a bucket list, wild swimming on every continent, walking all over the UK's highest peaks, going to the opera, ski, trying to ski, uh, visiting the great European cities, enjoying lots of time with the family and get a dog. Just out of interest, how is the bucket list going?
0: Well, I got the dog, as you know, and then I persuaded you to get Lovely Molly. Um, I've never been skiing. <laughs> I still want to do that. And I've never been to the opera. Bloody hell, I didn't know. It. Oh, I've sworn. That's a shame. Um, I've never realized how expensive the opera was. Um, so I haven't been to the opera either, but I will do it. And, so, and of course, you know, the pandemic doesn't help European travel. But I'm not complaining, Jeff. Uh, I've done an awful lot of swimming in an awful lot of different places I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you giving airtime to my book but I do hope that um, people enjoy reading it (laughs) and I hope that it helps some people (sighs) Professor
1: Toby Salt it's the juggling act how to juggle leadership and life and I give you the last word
0: thank you very much Jeff and I'm really really grateful for your time really looking forward to seeing you again soon Uh, please do read it
1: um, yeah, and here's uh, to you, Toby, and also to Darren. All best wishes.
0: Yeah, all the best to you. <laughs> Cheers, Jeff. Thank you. The ASCII Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.